I've entitled, Praying for a Nation in Peril. Praying for a Nation in Peril. We are living in a nation that is in perilous times. If you study the nation of Israel, you watch as they walk away from God over and over. And every single time, the judgment of God falls. And I wonder if some of those times where God allowed the government or allowed the nation to move in a direction that uh, certainly cost the people a great deal and go into bondage and all of those kind of things, I wonder if it didn't feel or look a little bit like where we are. You say, are you saying the judgment of God is falling? No, not necessarily. Uh, I really believe the judgment of God came a long time ago. The judgment of God, sometimes we look at, at it as Sodom and Gomorrah, fire raining down from heaven is the judgment of God. But the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the judgment of God really is when he turns us over to our own desires, when he gives us over to our own lusts and our own uh, imagination of our heart. And the reality is America's been there for a while. And we have a nation that still enjoys some freedom. We have a nation that is still, uh, I believe, salvageable. We have a nation that can still turn back to God. In fact, if you look at the history of revivals, you'll find that most of the time when revival came, it came at the most unexpected junctures of the history of those nations. You look at the Welsh revival, Wales was a wicked place, and Duncan Campbell said uh, that he never would have imagined that revival could come to a place like that. It was so uh, vile and so wicked, and yet God brought revival in the midst of that situation. I believe God can revive America. But the Bible does tell us very clearly in 1 Peter 4.17 that the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. If we're going to see revival in the United States of America, it won't be because uh, somebody from Antifa just happens to uh, make a decision to no longer pull down a statue or even because someone from uh, Antifa or Black Lives Matter gets saved. I believe those people can be saved and uh, we need to take the gospel to them. We should love each of them on an individual level and uh, we don't love what they, the organization stands for, but we should love those people. We should carry the gospel to those people. We should care for their soul and uh, they can certainly be saved and that's the desire that we would have. But revival is not the people out there getting saved. It's the people that are already saved getting thoroughly right with God. And that's what we greatly need in America. We need a national revival, the people that know Christ getting thoroughly right with God. The outcome of that then is that people will be saved. And so this morning, I really just want to focus in on this subject of prayer. How is it that we can pray for a nation when it is in peril? If you'll turn with me, if you're not already there, to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah this morning as he finds out the nation that he so loves and uh, the condition of it back in the promised land as uh, the temple, of course, has been rebuilt by Ezra. But the wall is still broken down. Uh, The safety is not what it needs to be. The nation is still in peril. And Nehemiah's heart is broken because of this whole situation. And so we'll begin here in Nehemiah. If you'll stand with me uh, just for a moment. Nehemiah chapter 1. And beginning in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month Chisleu, in the year uh, 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept 
and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, that we would leave this place with a burden to pray for our nation, what a burden to be thoroughly right with you, that we might truly see you work through us to bring revival in the United States of America. We love you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The problem in America is at the core and primarily a spiritual problem. As a nation, we have removed God from the fabric of our very nation, of our very being. The problem was that while God was being removed, really as a whole across the nation, Christians slept. It was not the uprising that there should have been. There was not the concern or the battling amongst the uh, political elements that were taking place as God was removed and prayer removed from the Christian schools and uh, ultimately the Bible and other things. And as all those things crept into our nation, we really just kind of allowed them to creep in. The problem is that we got so comfortable as Christians fitting in that we became fearful of sticking out. Really, America has in many ways been taken by a whole different viewpoint than it was founded on or founded to be. And in the most Christian nation there's ever been, it happened because Christians were silenced with the weak threat of mockery. You know, in America, we think of it as if too many people are too upset, if we really bother our society around us, and if we just make everybody think that we're not just like them, then how are we ever going to reach them? We've bought into, and I'm talking about just Christianity as a whole, churches as a whole across our nation, we we kind of have bought into this idea, we need to be a little bit like the world, we need to look a little bit like the world, and we need to not be too totally different, because you know, I mean, after all, if they really think that we are not paying attention to the things that are important today, and that are popular today, and and if we don't fit in a living, if we just stick out too much, and we're too different, and we're too far away from the world then, I mean, they're never going to come in. We're never going to reach them. By the way, they're never supposed to come in. We're supposed to go out. Amen? And uh, now we may invite them in. I love it when people come. But the gospel, it's not the primary uh, place for people to get saved. Is not at church. It's out in the highways and the byways compelling them to come in to know Christ as their Savior. And so uh, we have the responsibility of that. But as a nation, we came to the place where we said, let's not stick out too much. We redefined separation uh, as churches. We took it from separation being separated to God to separation being separated from the world. And what happened then over the course of the last, uh, I don't know, 100 years or so, probably even longer than that, is we began to follow the world and we stayed the same distance away. And as the world moved, so did the church in general. And as the world moved, we kept the distance from the world, but we lost our closeness to the Savior. And because we redefined it to be I'm separated from the world instead of I'm separated to Christ, all of a sudden as we moved, what happened is that Christians now are okay with and generally even think that there is great value in things that the worldly person would not have had an interest or anything to do with a hundred years ago. In fact, if you just go back to the beginning of television, there are things that uh, are on television now on Christian movies, and uh, and I'm not really trying to blast that this morning, it's not my primary focus of the message, but uh, so-called Christian movies that include things, uh, types of music and scenes and all kinds of different stuff that uh, 100 years ago or 50 years ago, I I don't know exactly when the TV came out, some of you could probably tell me, but uh, when the TV came out, they never would have allowed in any home. 
It's an amazing thing. We have followed the world and we've stayed about the same distance from the world, but we've lost our closeness to the Savior. And when that happened, we in essence did exactly what the nation of Israel has done uh, all through the Old Testament. We moved away from the one true God, and yet we expected his blessings to continue. Now the good thing is this, God is long-suffering to us, word. Amen? God is not willing that any should perish. God is so patient. He is so filled with grace. He allows us to come back in repentance. He allows us to come back and get right with him once again. And uh, what a great joy that that is. I don't know today exactly where we stand on God's timeline. It's not my purpose to try to say where it is. What I do know is this. God gives space to repent. And it may be today that we're standing in that space that God is saying, if my people will just come back to me, If my people will return, if my people will get thoroughly right, then once again, I'll bless the nation. The simple question this morning is how much are we willing to sacrifice? How hard are we willing to fight for our freedom? Are we willing to get up an hour earlier and spend an hour in prayer for our nation? Are we willing to stay up a little bit longer to pray for our nation? Are we willing to set aside some of the glamorous objects that the world has placed in front of us that we might make time to pray for our nation? Oh, I hope you're praying for your family. I hope you're praying as you should in so many different areas. And uh, yet the reality is it's so easy to not pray as we should for the United States of America. And you know the fact is we can come and pray. We find here in the book of Nehemiah a man who's going to pray on behalf of his nation. He's going to take days set aside specifically to pray for his nation. I wonder this morning, I won't ask the question, and I won't try to put anyone on the spot, but I wonder this morning if we were to ask the question, uh, who in the room sometime this week you took one solid hour just to pray for America in the midst of all the turmoil? I wonder, could you stand and say, yes, this week I took one hour, the week of the birth of our nation, I took one hour somewhere in the week to pray for our nation. Here's a man who said, I took days to pray for the nation because of the great need, because I saw it was a nation in peril. America was never great because America was religious. America has always and will always be as great as our fear of God is and no more. And that is why America has been a great nation, because America was founded by men who knew the one true God. The Puritans explained their reason for coming to America by saying, whereas we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in liberty and peace. Patrick Henry stated, it cannot be emphasized too much or repeated too strongly that America was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not upon religions, but upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad we had founders like that? You know, if you walk around Washington, D.C., you see etched in marble all over the place the Word of God and the statements like this. And uh, our founding fathers wanted to do all that they could, and for several generations, all they could to place in marble, to say, we don't want the foundations to be removed. We want to make sure that people know this is a nation that was founded on Jesus Christ. John Adams, America's first vice president and second president, stated, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You know, that's quite a statement. 
We see that really as being true. The further we move from God, the less the Constitution really uh, has the effect that it should and has for generations, and it's because we are no longer a moral and religious people. Benjamin Franklin was challenged about the idea of opening every session of the Continental Congress in prayer. And a man came to him, I believe the man was an atheist, he said, "Um, why is it that we would open every single session in prayer? Don't you think we need to be sensitive to those, uh, you know, even back then they wanted those kind of things, and don't you think we need to be sensitive to those who maybe wouldn't agree with praying and things of that nature? Benjamin Franklin responded, he said, I've lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. There's a lot of debate as to whether Benjamin Franklin was even saved or not, Uh, but the reality is he at least understood a nation not founded upon God and the word of God cannot succeed. You can go back through our founding fathers and you can go through one after another after another and you'll find over and over and over again men who uh, attested to the fact that this was indeed not just a religious nation but a Christian nation. Not just founded on religion but on the Word of God. Not just founded on ideas of man but on Jesus Christ Himself. Is it any uh, wonder that God has blessed this nation? George Washington, our first president, He did not have any precedent to go off of, and so he chose, he asked, to place his hand on a Bible as he took the oath of office. Then after he took the oath of office, his first official act as president was to take that Bible and kiss it, and then to go into the Congress and hold a two-hour praise and worship session of Congress. By the way, they weren't jamming out, amen? (laughs) Two hours of the president entering into the hall of Congress and he with the Congress of the United States, two hours of saying, here's what we have to praise God for. Here's the reasons we're thankful to him. Wouldn't it be something if we had a nation where that happened today? Wouldn't it be something to have a president walk into the Congress and say for the next couple hours, we're not going to talk about politics and we're not going to talk about business. My next official act as the president of the United States is we're just going to stop and talk about how good God is. And how our nation could not succeed without him. And let's just praise him for who he is. That was the first act of President Washington. America, in 1776, uh, it was said that uh, in America, in 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian in order to be eligible to run for office. In 1777, they voted to spend $300,000 on Bibles to distribute throughout the nation. If you go back and look, 94% of the writings of the founding fathers uh, of the U.S. contain quotations of the Holy Scriptures. As the states formed, all 50 state constitutions include some uh, significant mention of God within them. The Liberty Bell was inscribed with part of Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. 
An image of Moses was taken and placed on the uh, uh, Congress uh, room in which the house meets. And uh, if you stand, and I had the opportunity a few years ago to go to a meeting there in Washington, D.C. as preachers, we went and spoke with different congressional leaders. And one of the things that they allowed us to do was to come down uh, one evening into uh, the room there uh, in the state house where everything takes place. And man, it was neat being in there. I walked up behind the little podium. I stood where the president stands when he gives his uh, uh, State of the Union every year. And I thought, man, that'd be something to stand here. And I expected it to be this big, huge auditorium like you see on TV. I mean, it wasn't any bigger than this room, I don't think. Uh, maybe a hair. But it's, it's not a huge room. I mean, uh, the seats all feel close. The balcony's only about three rows deep. And so I stood there. Then I walked up, and there was the uh, chair for the secretary of the state. I sat in their chair. I figured, you know, might as well try it once. And uh, so I sat in their chair. And about that time they came up and said, yeah, maybe don't sit in the chairs. I said, yeah, no problem. And, uh, you know, we stood and and, uh, imagined what it would be to preach from that place and be able to preach to the Congress of the United States. I mean, it was just an amazing thing to be in that room and think of the history that had taken place in that room and all the stories of not just the building, but that room itself. And I remember as I stood behind that uh, pulpit and I looked forward, they'd probably call it a lectern, but I looked forward and there on the back wall, staring straight at the Speaker of the House as they're running any session uh, of the House of Representatives is that picture of Moses. And it was placed there by our founding fathers as a reminder that laws that are made in this room, they need to be consistent with the true law giver who gave the first law to Moses. And what a reminder as Moses is there and he holds those tablets in his hand that that is what America is founded on and that is what we must be. But as we've moved away, as we've followed like the nation of Israel further and further from a right relationship with God, we have to come then and say, all right, then how do we come back? What is our responsibility as Christians in a nation that was founded with such a a rich Christian heritage? has now come to a place where we truly are a nation in peril. What's our response? What's the right response? How do we handle this moment in time? I want you to notice the process of effectively praying for a nation in peril this morning. 2 Chronicles 7.14, probably many of us could quote it, says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. You know, the right response is the response of prayer. And I believe that Nehemiah, he most likely knew this verse here in 2 Chronicles. If not, which would be highly unlikely, but if not, he certainly at least prayed that which was consistent with this verse. I want to take just a few moments this morning and examine this prayer of Nehemiah and how it fits with 2 Chronicles 7.14. And how it is then that we ought to be praying for our nation in peril. I see here, first of all, he says, uh, or God said in 2 Chronicles 7, if my people called by my name. You'll notice as Nehemiah begins this prayer in verse number 5, he says, and said, so he says, I I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said. So he's going to tell us in the remainder remainder of chapter 1 what he said to God as he prayed to him. And the first thing that uh, he's going to do, or one of the things that he's going to do, is he's going to remind God, and obviously God doesn't need a reminder, but in prayer he's going to mention back to God the position of the nation before 
before God. In fact, look down at verse number 6. He says, Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. Now notice what he says, For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. And then if you skip down to verse number 10, he says, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed with thy great power. He reminds throughout the prayer, and he calls out to God, God, these are the children of Israel, thy servants. God, these are the children of Israel, the ones who you have purchased and redeemed. God, these are thy servants. Uh, These are the ones, they are thy people. And, And what he's doing is he's saying, Lord, remember who we are. Lord, remember, we are thy people. And, and of course, God says in his word, if my people called by my name. Look, it's, uh, uh, as Christians, we cannot look at the culture around us and say, well, if they weren't like that. No, 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 we must look and say, but we are the people of God. We know today it's not a nation, but it's those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior. And the Holy Spirit of God has taken up habitation within. And that we know Christ and we have a relationship with God. And when that is the case, that we are the people of God, we must pray. Now, before someone says something, let me just say, I understand 2 Chronicles 7 is written to the nation of Israel. I'm not saying it's a promise to the United States of America. Here's what I will say, though. God doesn't change. If that's what he told them was a good remedy for revival and a good remedy to once again return to God, then I think it's at least reasonable that we look and say it's probably a good uh, good thing for us as well to say, let's pray in that manner. And that's why we're taking uh, that outline to pray through. And so we see here, Nehemiah is coming and he's reminding where the people of God. And this morning as Christians, as the people of God, we have an opportunity to come boldly to the throne of grace. And what a joy to come boldly to the throne of grace on behalf of our nation. Lord, would you help us to be restored? Lord, we are coming as your children and we are coming to pray on behalf of the nation in which we live their position with God. Then I see that he also mentions the promises from God. Verse number eight, He says, remember, I pray thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. He said, Lord, remember not just who we are as a nation, but remember what you promised. And you know, as we come to God, we don't just come saying, well, we've received Jesus as our Savior, but we need to come saying, Lord, here's the promises that you've given in your word. Lord, you promised that when we confess our sin, that you'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, uh, no matter what happens in the nation, I want to be thoroughly right with you. So Lord, I'm going to come and confess my sin. I want to make sure that I'm right with God. I want to make sure I'm in a place to be able to pray uh, on praying ground, as they said in the old days. And, and I want to make sure I'm in a place to be able to pray effectively for my nation. And, and we ought to be coming and calling out to God the Word of God and the promises of His Word. Lord, would you bless in these manners. We're not just coming to you for uh, something that would make no biblical sense, but there's a reason we're coming. We ought to come with the Word of God. I see he called out their position with God. Secondly, he uh, makes mention of the promises from God, that God had promised judgment. He reminded even of that, Lord, you've said that, that we, you would judge. You told Moses that you would judge. And now they're in the midst of judgment. He said, but Lord, while we're here, you've also promised restoration. Would you bring us back to that place? 
would you bring us to a place of restoration? Oh, how America needs a place of restoration. Amen? But it must begin at the house of God. It must begin with the people of God being serious about getting on their knees and saying, I'm going to first make sure I'm thoroughly right with God. And then I'll pray, and whatever God chooses to do in our nation, I'll trust him with it. If it's the time where he chooses to go ahead and allow things to move forward in a direction I would not desire, that's fine, that's okay. I will continue to serve him. But Lord, we sure would like to see it restored. We sure would like to see us have a Christian nation once again, truly. We sure would like to come back to the place where as a whole across our nation, there's a respect of God. Lord, would you help us to come back to that place? Would you revive us once again in the midst of the years? Oh, what a prayer to be able to come and beseech our God for. So we see the position with God, their promises from God. Then we see the purchase by God. He reminds in uh, verse number 10, These are thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and thy strong hand. Lord, remember, you're the one who did the work. We're not your people because we chose to be. We're your people because you loved us and chose us. And certainly as we come today, that was the nation of Israel. As we come today, we come and say, we only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for coming and dying on the cross and thank you for redeeming us to yourself and now you've said that you're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Father, whatever happens in our nation, whatever the direction is, whatever the future plan, we understand it may not match to what our desire would be and that's okay, we trust you with it but Lord, in the midst of a nation even if it continues to go a wrong direction and to move away and and even if you're never going to bless it again would you help us to see people saved in the midst of this nation Because we know that's what your desire is. You've purchased them. You've bought them at the price of your own blood. You've redeemed. Lord, would you help us to see people come to know Christ as Savior. Help us to be faithful in the midst of this generation. You know, the great thing, or or the, the great need, it's not just, Lord, would you turn things around. But it's, Lord, if you choose not to, would you help me to be faithful no matter what you do. We ought to plan, we ought to prepare to be faithful to our God. It's love for God, not love of country. And so we see here, if my people called by my name, by the way, we can love our country and still the love of God is what's the most important, amen? And that's exactly what it is. We see that, uh, uh, first of all, he speaks of, if my people called by my name, secondly, says, shall humble themselves. Look at uh, verse number five. Nehemiah is praying at the beginning and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. Look at his view of God. That keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. I see, first of all, Nehemiah's humility in his view of God. You are the great and terrible God. You are the one of all power. He is speaking to him in this manner. You can tell uh, that, that this is uh, his view of God, that you're the one who's in control. You're the one who's powerful. You're the one uh, who I am humbling before. And so he's coming in this kind of a manner right from the beginning. But then verse number six is probably the most astonishing verse of the whole entire prayer. He says, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee day and night, For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. That part makes sense. Then he says, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. That's astonishing. Because now he comes and he's praying for a nation that walked away from God and encountered the judgment of God. 
But now he says, Lord, it's not just their fault. It's me. I've sinned against you. What humility. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to watch rioters on TV and the looting and them going in and breaking into stores and taking all kinds of stuff and, and, and working for as long as they can to break open cash registers and all these things. And, and it's obvious they're not there to try to uh, present a viewpoint. They're just there to steal stuff. It's easy for me to look at that and say, what a messed up nation we have. It's easy for me to look at that and say, man, uh, we live in a nation that sure needs something. They, when we, they, they sure need God. And those people, they sure are a problem. It's a whole different thing to say, no, 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 wait a minute. The problem really begins with me. I'm the one who stands in the way. I'm the one who has sinned before God. I'm the one who needs to really get right. All they are is people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Probably most of them have no hope. Probably most of them have no clue about eternity. Probably most of them have been taught things that uh, they, they don't even understand themselves what the realities are. And you know what the real problem is? Their real problem is they need Jesus. Their real problem is that they're sinners. And the real problem is I am too. We've just figured out how to make our sin look a little better, amen? We've figured out how to cover it up and how to put on a facade that looks so good. But when we allow God to examine the heart, we must come to the place where we say, Lord, I stand before you as a sinner. He said, well, my people, called by my name, humble themselves. Have you humbled yourself recently before God? Have you come and said, Lord, would you search my heart? Would you try my reins? Would you know me? Lord, would you reveal to me what the problems of my heart are? Because the heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God. And when he begins to reveal the problem of the heart, I'd say one of the best things to do is sit down with a notepad and a pen and say, Lord, would you reveal to me the sin of my heart? Would you reveal to me the areas that need to change and that I need to repent of? And then start taking notes, everything he reveals to your heart. You know, you do that a little bit, and before long you'll find out you probably need more than one sheet. Because things you didn't see as sin a while ago, you'll start seeing as sin. And then you just go through, don't try to deal, just write them all down, and then come back at the end and say, now, Lord, would you forgive me for this when I sinned against you? And deal with each one individually. So it's just coming and humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, I just want to know everything you want me to get right. Not what do I see, not what do I imagine, not what do I feel like, what do you see that in your mind needs to be changed? What was the last time that you just thoroughly humbled yourself in the sight of God? Here's a man who humbles himself. I see that when my people call by my name shall humble themselves, then he says, and pray. It won't take a lot of time here, but you'll find these if you just want to uh, mark them down. Verse number five, Nehemiah says, I beseech thee, in verse number six, he says, let now thine ear, uh, let thine ear now be attentive. Verse six again, and thine eyes open. Still in verse six, that thou mayest hear. He's asking for an audience with God. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king. 
Nehemiah knows what it is to enter in before royalty. He knows you don't just walk in before the king, but, but rather you have to ask for an audience. And he's speaking to the king of kings and the lord of lords. And in almost a royal uh, type of a manner, he comes and asks for an audience before the king. Would you, would you cause your ear to listen to me? Would you, would you give me your attention? Hey, would you let your eye look at me? Hey, king, don't be looking all around. Would you, would you pay attention? You wonder if maybe Nehemiah had ever said this to the king. Hey, king, king, I need, you, I need your attention. Would you give me your ear for a minute? Look at me. I mean, it's almost like a five-year-old, you know, when you have to, or maybe three-year-old, we have to take their eyes and point them at your face and say, no, 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 you have to look at daddy. And that's kind of what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, hey, would you give me your ear? Would you, would you let me see your face? Would you look at me? Would you pay attention? And, and then would you, would you listen that you can hear? Would you pay attention? Would you be attentive to what I'm saying? He comes and he's praying him. He's asking him. He's begging him. Verse number 8, he says, remember, I beseech thee. I beg thee. Verse number 11, O Lord, I beseech thee. And then again, he's going to say, let now thine ear be attentive. Hear thy servant. This is what he's beseeching him for. That's Nehemiah. Then he says, hear thy servant in verse number 11. That's others who were praying. And so he's saying he's beseeching, he's begging, he's uh, coming to God, humble but pleading. Verse number 11, he makes a request for, uh, to prosper and to grant mercy. And so he comes to God and all through the prayer, what's he doing? He's praying him things. The word pray means to ask. Literally, he's coming and he is asking God of things. If my people called by my name will humble themselves, don't ask first, you got to humble yourself. But when you're on praying ground, when that humility comes, then if they'll ask, then if they will pray me for the, on behalf of the nation. So Nehemiah comes, he humbles himself. Now he's going to beseech, he's going to beg, he's going to pray God on behalf of the nation that God would work, that God would move. You know, sometimes it's easy to come and begin to pray in the literal sense of that word, to ask for things. But if we have not first gotten ourselves thoroughly right with God, if we've not humbled ourselves and confessed and dealt with sin, if we have a wall between us and the Savior, is it any wonder if that's not dealt with and answered? Well, sometimes God chooses to answer prayer anyway. He can do that. And sometimes he does. Just like sometimes our children come and ask us a question when they haven't been doing what's right and, and we'll still answer, we'll still maybe give them something that's a blessing and, and God does that. But here's what he says when there's a need for a nation to turn back, a nation in peril. He says when the nation's in peril, to, to Israel, let my people, called by my name, humble themselves and pray. What does Nehemiah do? He follows it. Can I say to you, while it's not a promise to us as Americans, it's not a promise to us in New Testament Christianity, Christians have not taken the place of the nation of Israel. While it's not a promise, it is sure a good outline to pray. It is sure a good way to come to our God and be able to say, Lord, you said this to the nation of Israel, and, and we're just asking if you'll bless our nation similarly. We're praying for our nation while it's in peril. I see that he came and he prayed, he asked, and then the Bible says, God said, if they'll pray and seek my face. Verse number four, Nehemiah didn't just start making demands of God, but he says, it came to pass when I heard these words. Now notice his actions. I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know what he's doing in verse number four? He's seeking the face of God. Seeking the face of God, that's seeking that relationship, that closeness to the Savior. 
You know what he's doing before he ever even begins? He's saying, I'm going to spend some time here. I think he was probably praying during this time as well. I think there was probably an accumulation of that through here, but, but here's what he says specifically. I just sat there and I mourned for a while. By the way, I think this is the kind of mourning talked about in the Beatitudes. He's mourning. He's mourning the sin of the nation. He's mourning the condition of the nation. He's mourning the results of sin and the distance from the Savior. There's this mourning of his heart that drives him to a place of saying, I'm going to spend time fasting and praying. He's not content with just the prayer. He's fasting and praying. And of course, there's great power in that in the Bible, and we understand that. But it's not because it's some magical thing that we do when we fast. It's not uh, anything of that. It's because fasting says I'm going to set aside my physical desire for food so that I can more fully focus on the Savior and so that I can more fully focus on my relationship with Him. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's seeking after the face of God. He's seeking that relationship with God. So literally, he's seeking God Himself, not just what God can do for him. If we're not careful how easy it is to come to God and say, Lord, would you do this in my life? Would you do this for our family? Lord, would you restore our nation? Lord, would you do this? Hey, God, would you do that? Uh, We would really like for you to, and it's almost like we use God. I heard someone say uh, one time like a rabbit's foot redeemer. Like we just think we can come and have a good luck charm and we can rub it a little and say, well, uh, do this. And I just expect it to happen. No, 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 God's not our good luck charm. Amen. He says, when you come, seek my face. Don't seek what I can do for you. Seek me and a relationship with me. Here comes Nehemiah. Before he ever begins, he's seeking the Lord. He's not just seeking what God can do for him. If they'll pray, if they'll seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Verse number six again. He prays down through and towards the end part of the verse. He says, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel. We've read it, we'll read it again. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. Now continue in verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. I think it would be pretty easy for us to come on behalf of the United States of America and say, Father, we have dealt very corruptly with thee. Not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the judgments which you gave in this book. You know, the reality is America deserves judgment. But the reality is God is long-suffering to us. God allows us to be able to come in repentance. But you know, the truth is, it's not just America that deserves judgment. It's us. It's not just a nation. It's people individually. And that's what Nehemiah understood. Nehemiah didn't come and say, look at all those people. He said, we, we have dealt treacherously. What a broken-hearted prayer of a godly man. And as we come to God, we must realize it's not those out there we have dealt corruptly. You say, well, pastor, I've never really dealt corruptly. Yeah, that thing about asking God to show what we should write down and get right, amen? Uh, Because we've all been there, have we not? 
We've all dealt corruptly with God. We've all had times where we said, okay, I'm going to really get serious about this area of my Christian life. And two weeks later, we said, okay, now I'm really going to get serious about this area. Have we not all been there and committed things to God that we have not kept? Have we not all uh, prayed things and said, Lord, now I'm going to really be consistent about it? And then a couple weeks later, we realized we've forgotten to pray about it a few times uh, or more. Have we not all made decisions along the way that we have not perfectly kept? Have we not all dealt corruptly? When we really begin to compare it to the perfection, the beauty, the holiness of our God. Have we not all done things and sinned in manners that we know better when we do it? What a corrupt thing. For as a believer, to know the word of God and know that I'm about to sin against God and say, "Eh, you know, I'm going to justify this one. But haven't we all done it? The reality is we've dealt corruptly. We have to be able to come and say, Lord, I'm going to put myself there. It's not just the nation. I see sin must be exposed. Sin must be exchanged. Verse number 9 tells us uh, about this. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were uh, of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, this is God speaking, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And, And so... Here comes Nehemiah, uh, and he begins to pray about these things. Notice in verse number 11 in the middle, he says, uh, Would you hear thy servant and thy servants? And then he says this, Who desire to fear thy name. Here's what he's saying, Lord, we're not just praying a prayer. I'm not just coming and asking a request. Lord, but I, I really have an intention of actually making a change in my life. I'm not just coming to say some flowery thing, but, but this is an exchange, or this is repentance. So Lord, I'm saying I'm, I'm guilty of this, and I've done these wrong things, and I'm giving them to you. But Lord, I have a desire to fear thy name. I have a desire to serve you. I have a desire to do what's right, and I'm turning to that. And yes, this doesn't mean Nehemiah is going to be perfect, just like it doesn't mean we are perfect, but it's not just a hollow prayer either. And that's what he's saying to God. Look, I'm exchanging that which I have for following you and being faithful to you. And even as a believer, this is not repentance for salvation. It's repentance to be right with God. Lord, I'm repenting of that which is wrong. I'm turning to that which is right. Repentance is a change of heart, which leads to a change of mind and a change of direction. And so here's what he's saying. I've changed. I'm no longer pursuing this over here, but I'm pursuing the relationship with my God. I wonder this morning, have you ever had a time like that? Maybe you're here and you'd say, you know, I don't know of a time I've ever repented of my sin and turned from my sin to Jesus, even as my Savior. And maybe this morning you'd say, you know, you, you said something about this not being repentance of sin, but I don't know if I've ever even repented of my sin for salvation. And maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, if I were to die right now, I don't know for sure where I'd go or where I'd wake up. Or maybe you'd say, I do know, but it's not heaven. The reality is this morning, Jesus said that he died and that he is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus died on the cross so your sin could be forgiven. But the choice to receive it or reject it is yours. The Bible says that you must come to him admitting that Jesus is God, recognizing he died on the cross and rose again three days later from the dead by his own power as God. And then that you must come and repent of your sin. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but that does mean you're saying, I'm no longer pursuing the sin. I'm giving up all of that, giving up everything else I have. The thing I'm going to pursue and trust in is Jesus alone. You ever had a time where you've made that decision? That's the most important decision that there is. 
because it's the only one that affects you after you're dead. The reality is, maybe you'd say, Pastor, and probably the majority in the room this morning would say, Pastor, I've made that decision. I've repented for salvation. Good. I wonder this morning, if you're one of God's people, you're one of those who knows Jesus as your Savior, have you humbled yourself, prayed, sought his face, and turned from your wicked ways? Four things that he says, if my people will do it, it's the remedy for a nation. I wonder, are you praying in that manner in these perilous times? The reality is it's not just about America. It's about us being thoroughly and completely right with God. And whatever God does with America, he can do whatever he chooses. And I think we ought to be praying for our nation in a time like this. But you know, really praying for a nation in peril boils down to me getting right with God and making sure, yes, I'm praying for my nation, but I'm pursuing my God. Are you doing that on a regular basis? God's remedy for the nation of Israel, five-part prayer with a three-part promise. Then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin. Then I'll heal their land. I understand God has not promised that to us today. But I wonder if we follow the five parts of the prayer, if maybe for the United States of America, God wouldn't give those three parts of the promise and restore our land once again. Father, we love you. We thank you for how good you are. We understand this morning that we stand in the midst of a nation in peril. Lord, the nation's in peril in large part because as believers, we need to be revived and we need to be thoroughly right with you. And Lord, it's really not ultimately about a nation and a country. It's really about believers having a relationship that is what you'd want it to be in seeking your face. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here today that does not know you as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. You've said that now is the time. Would you help today that that decision will be made? Then, Lord, for those who do know you as Savior, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to truly be thoroughly right with you and then be praying for this nation during this time. We love you. We're thankful for the country you've entrusted. We're thankful for the freedom that you have granted us in this place. Lord, would you help us to use it for you Would you help us to pray effectively and regularly for our nation? And Lord, that we might truly seek you and be right with you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Heads are bowed.